In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering uh, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into, the, uh, into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in uh, the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. And Father, would you please give us your spirit in this moment? Teach us what we don't know. Would you please reveal your counsel to us? Give me an understanding of your word. In your holy name I pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, my four-year-old son, Jacob, got his hands on a deck of playing cards. Uh, consequently, he played pretty much the only game that a four-year-old knows how to play with playing cards, and that's 52 pickup. In only a matter of minutes, these things were sprawled across the floor, and uh, he needed to brush up on the rules of 52 pickup because he, there wasn't much picking up going on and a, and a lot of throwing <laughs> across the room going on. And so a- after some time of these cards being sprawled across the, the floor, uh, my wife, who was leaving to go to the store, looked at Jacob and said, Jacob, I am going to the store. I want you to pick up these cards before I get home. And then she left. She gave him a simple command, a task to complete, and expected him to obey her while she was gone. Now, sure enough, um, Jacob would procrastinate. (laughs) And about every five to ten minutes, I would remind him, Jacob, you better pick up those cards before mommy gets home, or you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And I heard about every single excuse that you could hear from a four-year-old, even down to just flat out ignoring me because he was doing something else. I also heard the excuse of it's just too hard. I'm not going to, that's just too hard. Uh, to, all the way to the classic, I can't do it, daddy, because my foot hurts. <laughs> Why that makes a difference, I don't know. But then that moment came when we both heard the garage door open. And my son immediately stopped what he was doing, looked up at me with some of the biggest eyes ever, and in a panic shouted, Mommy's home! And I have never seen this kid move as quickly to pick up those cards as he did that day. In his mind, he knew, Mommy has given me a job. And given me a specific time to complete it. And it's my responsibility to honor, obey, and respect her in that manner. On a much much larger scale, 
And on a much more serious note, if you are a believer in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, he himself has given you a charge and a time frame to complete it. This mandate is described in the passage that we read earlier. And I would like to just walk through this passage uh, verse by verse. There's a lot packed in here and I want to make sure we don't brush over anything. And so let's just start in the very first two verses. This is what it says on the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. These first two verses really serve as a prologue to the rest of the book of Acts. And we're introduced to a name, a a, a man named Theophilus. And the writer is also referring to a previous book that he has written to Theophilus. Because of this, we actually know that it's Luke that wrote the book of of Acts, right? He he is actually referring, when he talks about his prior work, his prior book, he's referring to the gospel of Luke, which we looked at last week, right? So in a sense, this is a second volume to Luke's historical account of Jesus. You could essentially take the gospel of Luke, pair it right up against Acts, put them together, and it would be one long orderly account of historical events. It's a single continuous narrative. And I want you to take note about how he describes um, his previous work. He says, in my first book, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. This implies that even though Jesus has ascended into heaven, Jesus' work isn't finished. Yes, in a sense, his atoning work is finished. He said that on the cross. He's referring to uh, the fact that he has done all the work necessary to attain salvation. So that is finished. But in a very real sense, his mission has just begun. There's more work to do. In a sense... If this book describes all that Jesus began to do and teach, we can assume that the rest of Acts, what Luke is setting up his writers to understand, is that this book is actually describes what he continues to do and teach. Traditionally, we refer to this book as the Acts of the Apostles. The apostles were those original followers of Jesus. There's not too many of them. And um, the title can be quite misleading. Because while this is an account of the actions of the apostles carrying out the work, the work is actually being conducted by Jesus through the power of his spirit, this Holy Spirit. And so in this moment that we read about the ascension, when he is taken up, it is absolutely important and crucial to this end because this is a marking point. This is a defining moment in Jesus's ministry. And it doesn't really get the attention that it should. We we all celebrate the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas. We observe the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday, and we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus uh, last Sunday during Easter. But then we often fail to make any mention of the ascension of Jesus. We have to understand that the ascension cannot be removed from the narrative. You have the incarnation, 
the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. They all go hand in hand. They are all part of the story of Jesus and play a vital role in his work. Because it's in this moment where Jesus ascends into heaven, this defining moment in his ministry, where it moves from an earthly physical ministry to a heavenly spiritual ministry. All the while, Jesus' ministry continues, and it continues to this day through the Spirit. This is a pretty wild and rather significant assertion that no other religion can make. Right, John Stott, he was a theologian from London who passed away not too long ago. He has said that it is no exaggeration to say that this sets Christianity apart from all other religions. The fact that Jesus is continuing to work. See, all other religions regard their founder as having completed their work in their lifetime. There's a clear beginning to their work. And there's a clear end to their work. And we know that there's a clear end to their work because they die, right? Every other founder from every other religion has passed away. And that is the marking point of this is when their life's work has ended. And that is all that they have to work from. However, our founder, Jesus, his work doesn't have an end. Why? Because he's not dead. He's alive. This is what we discussed last week. And so he continues to work naturally because he's still living. Stott goes on to say, this then is the Jesus Christ we believe in. He is both the historical Jesus who lived and the contemporary Jesus who lives. And before he ascended, before he left his followers physically, we're told that he actually makes provision for the continuation of his ministry. While he is leaving physically, he wants to ensure that his, his ministry on earth continues among flesh. And so for 40 days after the resurrection, he gave instructions to them before leaving. What exactly were these instructions? Take a look at verse 3. This is what he says. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This verse communicates two things that Jesus is doing in this 40-day time period. First, he is showing them that he is indeed alive. That he is alive in the flesh. This is important because in that culture, it was not too crazy to believe in ghosts or ghost stories where these ghosts would appear to you. In a sense, Jesus is telling his disciples and demonstrating to his disciples that, no, I'm not a ghost. I'm not merely appearing to you. I am giving you convincing proofs. I am engaging with your senses. I am physically with you because they were physically able to touch him and grab him by the hands. They would sit and listen. It wasn't just a seeing. It was a listening to, them, to him teaching them uh, about the kingdom of God. They ate with him. There was no denying for these disciples, these witnesses, that this indeed was a resurrected Jesus who was once dead and now alive. He spends 40 days to make sure they understand this is not just a vision this is me in the flesh. The second thing he does in these 40 days is he teaches them about the kingdom of God. 
In a sense, what he's doing is he is providing sound teaching. This shows us that there is an objective truth that is the foundation of our faith. There are cold, hard facts that serve as the groundwork for our faith in this movement called Christianity. And the objective truth is this. Jesus died and has been resurrected. We call it the gospel. And it's the very foundation behind everything we believe and teach and do. And if you know the rest of the story of Acts, you will know that revival is coming. That people would come to know and follow Jesus by the thousands. But in order to prepare the apostles for this movement, Jesus takes time to demonstrate and teach objective truth. There was a, a, a great historical evangelist named J. Edwin Orr who committed his life to studying and focusing on church revival and renewal. You might not be familiar with his name, but another guy you're probably familiar with, uh, perhaps the most famous evangelist of all time, Billy Graham, said this of Orr. He said, Dr. J. Edwin Orr, in my opinion is one of the greatest authorities on the history of religious revivals in the Protestant world. That's a pretty good endorsement, right? Graham is saying, if you want to talk about Protestant revival, church renewal, you need to go talk to J. Edwin Orr. And according to J. Edwin Orr, he says that a theological awakening must always precede a revival of religion. He wrote about how it is a deep-rooted fact that religious revival is always preceded by sound biblical teaching. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing in preparing his disciples during those 40 days. If we wish in your hearts to see revival in Erie and in this church and in your own hearts, we must be faithful to the sound doctrine, to the teaching of God's word, to the objective truth that is the gospel. Then and only then will revival happen if we teach people the word of God. This is what Jesus did to prepare his disciples. But he doesn't stop there. He knows that they don't need just an an intellectual insight to the things of God, but they also need a spiritual insight. This is what he says in verses four and five. Go ahead and take a look. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. This word baptism literally means to immerse, to, to be immersed essentially this is why we do when we do baptisms, we dunk people completely underwater. We are completely immersing them into water because that's what the word baptism actually means. And so to be baptized with the Holy spirit in the most basic sense is to be completely immersed in the experience and fullness of God through the Holy spirit. To be baptized in the Holy Spirit is to be completely immersed in the experience and fullness of God through the Spirit. 
Now, there are a lot of opinions, probably even in this very room, how this baptism of the Holy Spirit actually manifests itself in Christianity. Uh, But I'm not out to make any theological enemies today. And so what I would like to focus on is what we can all agree on in regards to the Holy Spirit. For the most part, all believers can agree uh, on more than two things, but I want to just address two things uh, that we can agree on with the Holy Spirit. First, we can all agree that the Holy Spirit is a gift that we receive at salvation, and it binds us to Christ and to other believers. It binds us to Christ. He binds us to Christ and to other people. If you are a true believer in Christ, If you are a true follower of Jesus, you have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He has come to live inside of you. A lot of people talk about when you become a Christian, you're inviting Jesus into your heart, right? That's a phrase that we often use. And I would actually say it's inaccurate because we're not inviting Jesus into our heart. We're actually inviting the Holy Spirit into our hearts. He is the one that is coming to to live with us. He is the one that has indwelled us and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that seal is a deposit for your eternity. It's the down payment. Essentially, when we die and we come face to face with the judgment of God, what he is looking for is verification. What he's looking for is a deposit. He's not looking at your good deeds He's not checking out your accomplishments. He's not even checking your your attendance records at church. No, what he is looking for, what God the Father is looking for, is do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you have the Holy Spirit? When you became a follower, you should have received the Holy Spirit. And and if you receive the Holy Spirit, that verifies that, that you are who you say you are. Because you've been given the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit that's living inside of you you that that came upon you when you first put your trust in Jesus? Just as a document can be legalized by a notary, the, the Spirit puts his stamp of authentication on your soul. That's part of his role. If you want to look more into this, there's a couple of really good passages that you could study. We don't have time to turn to them, but 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is a good one that talks about this. First Corinthians 12, 13 and Ephesians one, Ephesians one, 13. And the implication of this, because you've been indwelled by the spirit is that you have access to God's power. We're going to get to this a little bit later, but this is part of their driving force to be able to be witnesses is that they have power from the Holy Spirit. And so when you are wrestling with your sin and, and, and holy living and you stand there and you say, I can't do this, I would say you're exactly right. You can't, but guess what? The Holy Spirit can and he lives inside of you or he should live inside of you. And if he doesn't, then we've got other problems. You are capable of overcoming your sin because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have this power. You are capable to tell your lost friends and family members about Jesus because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have access to a greater power than what you have on the inside. In our culture right now, we are just obsessed. Um, You talk about pop culture right now. We are obsessed right now with uh, superhero movies, right? 
We love superhero movies. That new, the new Avengers Endgame movie just came out this weekend. I saw it on Friday. It was fantastic. I won't spoil anything for you. Um, but it's expected to be like the top grossing movie of all time. Because we love to look at superheroes and, and be fascinated by, by their superhuman abilities. We love to look at them and say, wow, if only we had that kind of power. But in a very real sense, while I may not be able to fly and I may not be able to control things with my mind, I have a, an external supernatural power in the Holy Spirit. I am a superhero <laughs> because I have the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing that we can all agree on. If you are a Christ follower, the spirit lives in you and he has given you power. The second thing that we can all agree is that as a spirit indwelled believer, we must completely yield ourselves over to the Holy Spirit. And all this means is we need to allow him to take charge. We need to allow him to take the wheel and obey him. See, in our flesh, And in our sin nature, we are going to constantly battle between the things of this world and the spirit. We're going to constantly want to take back the steering wheel. We're constantly going to go to the spirit and say, hey, no thanks. I want to handle this my way. I would much prefer to do it this way. It's going to be a constant battle. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 that you can actually quench the spirit, meaning you can suppress the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to go to the spirit and say, I know you want me to do this, but I don't want to, so I'm not going to. So we have to understand with this implication that all effectiveness in ministry And all effectiveness in evangelism and all effectiveness in holy living is directly tied to the work of the Holy Spirit and our submission to him. You want to be effective? Submit to the Holy Spirit. We must pray and obey for the Spirit to fill us. We must experience this baptism, this immersion into the fullness of God, or our work here is in vain. We'll do a lot of fun things. We'll do a lot of fun and engaging things here at FAC, and none of them will have any real spiritual impact. You know, I get concerned sometimes that if the Holy Spirit were to look at FAC and decide he's just going to back away and no longer work, if he decides I'm going to take my work elsewhere and I am no longer going to have my hand uh, on FAC, how much would still continue at FAC? How many of our programs would continue if the Holy Spirit, would we even notice a difference if the Holy Spirit decided to make his exit and we just continue on? See, it's true today just as it was true yesterday. And this is no different for those disciples. And this is why Jesus tells them not to depart from Jerusalem until they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, because he's telling them you have to wait because you're powerless without him. It would be foolish to go forth without him, almost as if to say to his disciples, you are not capable of doing this work that I've commissioned you to do without the Holy Spirit. Yes, the mission I'm sending you on is urgent, but don't set out until you are properly equipped with the right tools to carry out the mission. And this is how Jesus prepares his disciples to go on their mission. 
He provides with them, for them sound doctrine, sound objective truth, and the Holy Spirit. I love these verses because it actually marries the objective truths of Christianity that have to be there with the subjective experiential aspects of Christianity. It integrates the objective with the subjective. It takes the cold, hard facts that we can point to, and they have to be there because it's the very foundation of our faith, and it combines them with the work of the Holy Spirit. In the same way, our church needs to integrate the objective with the subjective. We need both. We need both. We need the sound teaching and the sound doctrine, but we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate such teaching and provide power for Christian living and evangelism. Unfortunately, you will get Christians and you will get churches that sit in one of these two camps on either side of the pendulum. You will get these these believers in these churches that put so much emphasis on one at the cost of the other. And this passage is telling us, no, you actually need both. Because to focus purely on the objective would rob the church of its power, would rob the church of its effectiveness. But to focus merely on the subjective would rob the church of its foundation, would rob the church of actually what we teach. We need both. Charles Swindoll is a pastor that said that truth, objective, truth without power accomplishes little in a world dominated by evil. Saying if you focus all, if you put all of your attention on this emphasis and you never go to the spirit and you never yield to the spirit and you never ask the spirit, you're going to have no power in a world dominated by evil. But on the other side of things, you've got John Calvin, who has said that zeal without doctrine is like a sword in the hand of a lunatic, right? You've got somebody who's passionate and always wanting to, 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 to go about living in the spirit, and they've disregarded the complete foundation of our faith. And what you get are people that, that are vague and ambiguous at best and heretics at worst. And so we need both, In order to accomplish the mission, we need to integrate the truth of God's word with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Then and only then will we see amazing transformation in our lives and the lives of the lost. Then and only then will we see progress in Christ's mission. What is Christ's mission? I'm so glad you asked. I want to make sure we are absolutely clear about what our mission is because there may be some confusion. And we know that there may be some confusion because the original disciples were still a little confused. Take a look at verses six through eight. This is what it says. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these, or I'm going to stop right there. Sorry. 
right before Jesus leaves, they ask him a question. Hey, Jesus, is it finally time to restore the kingdom of Israel? This is something that they had actually hoped that Jesus would do prior to his crucifixion. See, their entire lives, these men growing up Jewish, they had thought that the kingdom of God was Israel. And they expected this Messiah, this Savior, to come and restore Israel to its prominent place in the world. That he would establish it as a great kingdom that was, was not occupied by the Romans or by anybody else. And you can almost see the faultiness to their thinking in this question. In this question, we see that they are concerned about three different things. They're concerned about a specific time. They're concerned about a specific location. And they're concerned about a specific people group. They're concerned about a specific time, a specific location, and a specific people group. And Jesus responds basically saying, you are going about this all wrong. You need to, you need to think much bigger. You need to get outside of that little box that's in your head and see that my plan and my work goes far beyond a specific time and a specific location and a specific people group. You know, and he addresses these three things in his response on the timing. Jesus starts off by saying, you don't need to concern yourself with timing. It's not for you to know. It's not information that you're privy to. All you need to do is recognize that God the Father is the one that has set the time of all of this. And God the Father is perfect. And so if God the Father is perfect, then I know that his timing is perfect. So you don't need to know when, you just need to trust that it's perfect. Because God the Father is the one that has that time. In regards to the timing of all this, you don't need to get all worked up because it's perfect. And all you need to do is believe that it's perfect and trust that. The disciples didn't need to worry about the time. Jesus goes on and says, but, but here's what you do need to concern yourself with. In regards to this place, this kingdom, Jesus provides a much different concept of kingdom. When the disciples are asking this question about restoring the kingdom, they have in mind a physical territorial place that you could open up a map and put your finger down and say, this is where that kingdom is. It's something you can point to on a map. And with this, the disciples really are pursuing political aspirations. They're ambitious for political power, which comes with the restoration of an earthly kingdom. But Jesus presents alternative aspirations. He tells the disciples, no, 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 no. Don't concern yourself with political power. Be concerned with spiritual power that comes from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells them this because the kingdom of God isn't a physical uh, territory. It's not a spot on the map, a physical kingdom. No, it's a spiritual kingdom. And as believers, you and I make up this kingdom. And we expand this kingdom, not physically, but spiritually. How is it expanded? According to verse 8, it's not spread by soldiers, like a physical kingdom. It's spread by what? Witnesses. It's spread by witnesses. Witnesses who have seen and believed in the resurrected Jesus. And this kingdom isn't spread by the power of military weapons. No, it's spread by the power of the Holy Spirit that we've been given, uh, as mentioned earlier. It's important to note that Jesus doesn't give them a strategy. 
doesn't give them a program that will attract people. He doesn't give them modern technology that can really wow the people. He doesn't give them a top-notch facility that will get people through the doors. No, he gives them the truth of the gospel as witnesses and a spiritual firepower. This is what I'm going to provide you guys with. See, all, all of those things that I mentioned earlier are good, but none of them hold up with the sands of time. Only God's word and God's spirit can do that. See, as time and culture change, we do need to adjust things to our context and things will change, but there must be one thing that stays consistent, and that is the presence of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're going to be effective. Not because we have the best programs or the best facility or the most up-to-date technology. No, it's as simple as this. God's word, Holy Spirit. That's all we need. It's all we need to have effective ministry. And so God tells them, don't be concerned about the timing. He says, don't be concerned about the, the kingdom. It's not physical, but it's spiritual. And then he lays out the mission and expands its parameters. He's saying, your mission is to be my witness and not just to Israel, because all you're concerned about right now is Israel, but, but you're going to go to the end of the earth. Look, you're going to start in Jerusalem and then like a ripple, you're going to expand outside of Jerusalem into all of Judea, Samaria. And then eventually you're going to reach the end of the earth. You're going to go into to all of the earth. Your job after I leave is to go out into the world and tell them about who I am. That's the mission. To make it as clear as day, your mission, go out into the world and tell people about Jesus. Tell them about the resurrected Christ. And with this, we actually see a transition of sorts, right? For, for these men, Judaism was always a come and see religion. You want to worship properly, you have to come to Jerusalem. You have to come to, to, to the temple, right? You, you have to come and see. But Jesus, with this new uh, commission, actually shifts the mentality from come and see to go and tell. Go out of Jerusalem. We, we want you to go out into the world to be my witness. You might recall a conversation that Jesus had with uh, the Samaritan woman at the well specifically about worship. In that conversation, the woman is speaking with Jesus and she says, you as a Jewish man say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And do you remember what Jesus says in reply? He actually tells her, hey, the day is coming where you won't worship God in Jerusalem, but you will worship him where? In spirit and in truth. That day is now. The day has come. It's no longer a come and see. It's a go and tell. And with this, we have to understand our own responsibility. See, in the former model, in that come and see mentality, the burden of responsibility was always on the outsider to come in. You've got a problem with your life. You want to worship God. You've got to come to us. The burden of responsibility is on you to take the action to come in. 
But now that we have shifted, that Jesus has shifted this mentality to go and tell, the burden of responsibility is no longer on the outsider to come inside, but it's actually on the insider to go outside. We carry the burden of responsibility for the lost instead of them. You see what happens in this room on Sunday morning is really, really, really important but it ought not be the extent of our ministry. You know, sometimes I wonder if we are stuck in this come and see framework. We kind of convince ourselves, right? That if my friends or my family members or non-Christian friends, if they want God, they'll come and see. If my, if my friends want God, they know where to find us. Well, let me tell you, they want God whether they, they believe it or not. By the, by the authority of God's word, I am telling you that your non-Christian friends want God and you cannot wait for them to come and see. Right? You, you cannot put the burden of responsibility on them. You can't sit here and say, well, they'll know where to find us when their life falls to pieces. Let me tell you, if they do not know God, their life is already in pieces. They need to know this, and the burden of responsibility is on us. And so if the extent of your personal ministry is to invite friends to church and hope they come and see, I think you need to reconsider some things. I don't want to discourage you from inviting people to church. I think it's crucial. I think a lot of people become believers that way. It's absolutely vital that you continue to invite people. But let me encourage you that that should not be the end of your personal ministry. That should not be the extent of your personal ministry, but that should be the start. In the, in the, very, in the most very basic sense, that's the starting line to invite people here on Sunday morning. It's just the beginning, not the end. And the beautiful thing about this And what this passage is teaching us is that not only can you do this ministry personally, but you've been commissioned to and then enabled to. Think about it. You have been given the same gospel that these disciples were given over 2,000 years ago. And not only that, but you have been sealed with the same spirit of power that these disciples were sealed with over 2,000 years ago. And so there is no reason to believe that we shouldn't have the same results. Something, obviously, if we're not seeing transformation, there's obviously something wrong. And it's not in God's word because God's word is perfect and it's the same that it was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And it's not in the power of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the same as yesterday and today and tomorrow. And so we need to look at how we're doing things and how I'm doing things personally and and perhaps wonder, maybe we aren't seeing transformation because I've got this backwards. Because I'm sitting here telling people to come and see what I need to be going and telling. I am an ambassador for the truth and everybody needs to hear it and everybody needs to know it. We have hundreds of people that attend FAC on a regular basis. Our district superintendent, Dave Noggle called this, described this as critical mass. 
Can you imagine what we could accomplish if, if we were all living out this mission in a practical way? We could see wonderful transformation in Erie County if we all became passionate and serious about the mission that's been entrusted to us. To be a Christian is to care for mission work. And I'm not talking about uh, just missionary work in the formal sense overseas. I'm talking about mission work to the, to the person that sits next to you in the cubicle next door. I'm talking about mission work to your neighbor across the street. I'm talking about mission work to your family members that don't know Jesus. We have a responsibility. Our mission is to go into the world and be Jesus's witnesses. And the best place to do that on a personal level is to do it right where God has placed you. Right where God has placed you. That's the mission. You may ask the question, how long are we on this mission? That comes in our final verses, and we'll touch on this briefly, but take a look at verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there uh, looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They see Jesus ascend into heaven and two angels explain that Jesus is coming back. But we're on this mission until he returns. The great commission is described as Matthew 28 would call this to the end of the age. So you combine that one with this one. It's the same message. Uh, essentially, we are to be his witness to the end of the earth and to the end of the age. Essentially, what it's saying is go as far as you can for as long as you can. And don't stop until both of those ends have been reached. See, the whole main point of this whole, the main point of this whole passage is that we are to, to combine the truth of God's word with the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the combination that will allow us to reach the lost. This is the recipe, so to speak, to, to, to reach the lost. Greg Steer, he's the, he's the founder of Dare to Share Ministries, has written that the power of the Spirit and the power of God's work, uh, God's word work together like nitrogen and glycerin to explosively ignite transformation in the lives of the bad and the broken. This is what I want to see in Erie. This is what I want to see in our church. Explosive transformation in the lives of our people and our community. And I love the question that these angels ask these men as they're just standing there looking up at the sky. They ask the question, what are you doing? Why are you standing here just looking up at the sky? Almost as if they're just sitting there kind of twiddling their thumbs. You know, what, what do we do next? You see, this interesting, interestingly enough connects to the passage that we looked at last week. Two angels interpreted the resurrection when they asked the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? In the same way, two angels interpret the ascension when they ask the question, why do you stand looking into heaven? The, the implication of the questions are the same. And that's, there's nothing to be seen here. 
You don't need to look up anymore because there's nothing to be seen. So get up and move. You've got a job to do. And just as some are still looking for the living among the dead, there are probably many, many more believers even in this room that are looking up at the skies, twiddling their thumbs, wondering what's happened next. What's going to happen next? What do we do? This is what we do. This passage shows us that it's God's intention to use us. It is not God's intention that we become believers, witnesses, and then sit idle. No, he wants to use us. And he has empowered us with the Holy Spirit and equipped us with God's truth in order to do so. We have access to that kind of power and we aren't taking advantage of it. It's like we're sitting in like a 700 horsepower Ferrari and you're driving like 20 miles an hour. You've got that kind of power. You better use that. You got to use it. So let me encourage you to go out from this place with the truth of God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit and make disciples. Go out into your places and tell the lost and the broken and the hurting about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have equipped us with and, and your spirit that you have given us, a spirit of power. I pray, Lord, as we go from this place that we would be ambassadors in this world and that you would spark in us a desire for Jesus to be known, Lord. So many times I make up my own excuses this is too hard or this is too uncomfortable or, or whatever the case may be, Lord, but I would ask that you would not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. Father, even in this moment, would you impress somebody on the hearts of our people, somebody who needs to hear about Jesus, somebody who needs to be invited in, Lord, would you please, Father, give us somebody on our hearts and our minds right now that we can pray for and passionately pursue and love? And Father, as we go, would your name be reached across the nations? Would other countries throughout the entire world, America included, know that there is hope and there is peace and there is love? Lord, I think about uh, just the tragic incident last Sunday in Sri Lanka with hundreds of believers uh, falling at the hands of evil men. Lord, would you please bless their families? Would you give them comfort in a time of great mourning? And Lord, we would ask that your hand of judgment would, would come down as well, Lord. I praise you, Lord, that um, you look at our sin and you take it seriously, so seriously that you sent Jesus to die on a cross and rise again. Lord, I lift up our offering to you as we close. Would you use these funds to uh, allow us to make Jesus' name known? Would you bless them? And those who have, have given, would you bless them as well, Father, for worshiping you in this manner? And in your holy name I pray. Amen.